0: I invite you to turn in your Bibles to John's Gospel, John chapter 2, as we're working our way through this important fourth Gospel. We're some four months or so into this Gospel and getting through, working through this uh, shorter chapter. There's only 25 verses, and we've already covered the wedding at Cana. And last week, we looked at part one of Jesus' collect, cleansing, rather, excuse me, the temple. And it's um, really quite a contrast, as we noted last week, quite a contrast between the settings there at Cana and now here, where he is in Jerusalem, and he, what he sees is most disturbing to him. He sees that his father's house, that the temple itself has become, as he says, when he comes the second time in Matthew's gospel, it's been made a den of robbers. There's corrupt, crass commercialism going on. And we have reason to believe that it's, I think it's reasonable to believe that the high priest on down had a hand in them bringing their wares into the Temple Mount area. Because before that, historically, they were outside of the temple. And so this might have been somewhat surprising. We don't know what Jesus limits, had limited himself to in terms of his omniscience, but he sure seems upset in any case by what he sees. And he clears out the temple courtyard area. The, the courtyard of the Gentiles, as it's referred to, he fashions a whip of cords that he finds probably little tethers that held the livestock there that they were selling, buying and selling. They had to use the uh, currency current in uh, Jerusalem at the time. So that's hence the money changers and they charged a fee. And so it was just corrupt, but he moved them all out. And we saw that last week. And this morning, we're going to take part two as we look at verse 18 to 25. Let's, let's read that together. John chapter 2, verse 18 to the end of the chapter. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. When they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this word, your word to us here this morning, that you've appointed this part of John's gospel for this particular day, for these particular souls. We thank you for that, and we ask, O oh Lord, that you help us to understand all that's being said here. We would mine out all that's beneficial to us in our journey through Christ's likeness, as you're at work in us to sanctify us and make us look like your son. We want you glorified in our lives, O oh Lord. We understand that the word taken into the heart has a life-changing power to it, The more time we spend in it, the deeper we go down through it, the more we come up looking like the Son, Jesus Christ. So be with us now that you might be glorified in that process. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So chapter 2 pretty much demonstrates what chapter 1 had declared through the 15 titles and designations. Of divinity that uh, John disclosed as we looked at that coming out of chapter one, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's the point of this entire gospel. That's the point that's been the singular point that's being made, so that having heard unequivocally, I mean, think of all as we had cited the 15 titles and designations that John opens with, with his chapters opening. Uh, gambit his is without salutation he goes right into it doesn't he in verse 1 of chapter 1 in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god i mean that's that's his opening line not hello how are you my name is john he doesn't even cite his name in the entire gospel so chapter 2 is a demonstration of those facts about who jesus is We get to actually see him fulfill those titles that he's been given in chapter 1. All that deep theology that we uncovered there as the Lord was showing us who his son actually is. We see it coming in a most poignant and powerful demonstration. We saw that at the very beginning in a very uh, gentle and and serene way at a wedding when he turned the water into wine. So we're seeing a declaration of deity that's proven in four impressive ways in this chapter. First of all, we're seeing it in the power that he has over nature. He's turning pure water into wine, some 20 to 30 gallons worth. So here's the Christ with all those titles and more. But whatever is disclosed about him coming into this chapter, we're seeing he doesn't even have to speak a word. He doesn't even say wine. Nothing. He said, just fill those jars with water and then take it and give it to the master of the ceremony. And they're dipping in and going, oh my, this is the best wine ever, right? And he also does that. He demonstrates his power over men, obviously, as we've seen last week by the cleansing of the temple. It's amazing. He fashions this whip, of course. He didn't whip anybody. He didn't whip any of the livestock. It just was symbolic. And they all leave without resistance, without any kind of calling down to the temple guard, without any of them fussing, they all clear out. And, and that alone was amazing. But now by his power of predicting the future, and we'll look at that. We're going to look at this one, one section at a time. His prophetic power, tear down this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up again. And John, of course, disclosing this is some decades later when he's writing, obviously. So John knows he's talking about he's talking about the temple of his body. So we get that information. We didn't have to wait decades to find out. We have far more immeasurable amount of information about who God is and about who the Christ is by what has been given to us. It's just absolutely remarkable. That's why it takes time to go. And through this gospel, this takes time. There's so much here. So the precision of his prophecy, and we're going to look at that as we get to it and forth by the power of his knowing the thoughts and motives of all mankind. It doesn't matter who you are. He knows not only what you're thinking, but what your motives are. And we're going to look at that too. So, The entire chapter then, is, you could say, an unambiguous, there's nothing uh, equivocal, there's nothing vague about it, an unambiguous testimony to the deity of Jesus Christ. If we miss that, we've missed the point. And actually the point is, as he states it at the end, is to believe these things that he is disclosing to us, even here this morning. So first of all, Let's take a look at Jesus' divine power over nature as we start with verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Uh, so this is Simeon. This is a word that means that means signs, of course, and wonders, miracles. This is what they're asking for. They're asking for a some spectacular demonstration To validate who he is, to verify who he is, by what, whose authority are you doing this? They come right out and say that. The next time he clears the the uh, temple, as it's reported in Matthew 27, they say right out, "Who gave you this? By whose authority are you doing this?" They're a little more um, uh, gentle with this question. Uh, What sign do you show us for these things? They're probably hoping for for something. It's a, who gives you the authority to clear this temple? Who do you think you are is essentially what they're saying. They want to know who he thinks he is, but they can't press too hard. Can they, if our assumption is right, that is that the hype all the way up to the high priest has his hand in the pot. So you got to be a little more gentle, don't you? It's like, Hey, show us a sign. We might be busted here, Right. If he shows us a sign, we're really in trouble unless we can explain it away because they spend the rest of his ministry, his three year ministry from this day forward. This is the beginning of his ministry, excuse me, explaining away the things that he does and he does some amazing things. Show us a sign. By the time we get done this morning, hopefully we'll see how ludicrous that question is. Show us a sign. Ask the guys who are in Cana. They had to be talking about it. He's got his disciples there. They were there. They were just there. So Jesus turned the water to wine. Now they witness him ushering out clearly likely thousands out of the Temple Mount area and all of that livestock by himself single-handedly without resistance. you want a sign? What was that? As we would have said in New York, chopped liver. That's no small feat. Especially when you notice that no one resisted me. Not a single man resisted me. Yet they're asking for a sign. So I want to show you a couple of other passages that I thought were pertinent here as far as his his power over nature. And they're looking for some kind of a sign Uh, I was looking at John chapter 6. I'm looking forward to each one of these chapters in this gospel. I mean, something amazing happens in every single one to just prove Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. John opens, of course, chapter 6 with him feeding the 5,000, and you remember that. Well, that same night is when there's a storm, and they're out in the boat, the disciples, and they're panicking, and he walks on water. He can speak to the winds and they obey him. He can speak to the waves and say, be calm. And then he can walk on water. This is him. So this is the next day now in the part that I want to show you in John chapter 6. So now what we've just seen in the opening passages of John 6 in verse 28 to 31. Now they're asking him this question. This is right after he starts talking about the bread of life, that whole metaphor and how important that is. And here they go with another question where you just kind of turned your head. What must me do to be doing the works of God? I want you to think for just a second why they would ask such a question. Jesus answered them. This is the work of God. You want the work of God? This is it. That you believe in him who he has sent. That's the work of God. Do you think they get it? Let's press on. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do? There they are. There they go again. That we may see and believe you. So it's by sight. They're going by sight. You see that? And we walk by and not by. Sight, that's was just Jesus's point. I, I want you to believe. Believe what? Well, um, by this time, take your pick. It's pretty clear who he is. But he he says, uh, "They said, uh, show us that, so we might see and believe." What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Oh, I get it. So all you've seen Jesus do is acts that are contrary to the natural order. You've gotten men to move. You turned water to wine. All of those things. You, you did those. But I'll tell you what our father Moses did. It rained down bread. You're talking about bread. We had bread for days. Do something like that. And we might believe you in Mark chapter 8:11 to 13 and by the way they missed the most important point that true saving faith is not by works performed it's by faith it's by believing that's going to be John's whole point whole thesis going forward so in Mark 8:11 to 13 after feeding the 4000 the Pharisees came verse 11 and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Do we got to bring up Moses again, Jesus? Because man, that was impressive. Like walking walking on water. Yeah, okay. So you're doing things here. You're you're healing people. You're, you're giving sight to the blind. These things are impressive. But you know, we've got magicians and astrologers who can do some pretty. Uh, impressive stuff in this natural order, rain down bread from heaven. Would that have convinced them, by the way? I love the next, what it says next. And he sighed deeply in his spirit, I would say, and said, why does this, gener- this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. <laughs> which is ironic because of course he's given them a plethora of signs. He's done many many things already. But all on earth, see? That's the problem. He didn't put on a light show. He didn't start having things fly out of heaven. He didn't have, you know, put on a light show with the with the stars and with the suns and the moons. Do something really impressive. Well, that's not the issue with them, is it? The issue is brought up, of course, and that's why I have a reference. We're not going to look at it now. There isn't enough time. There's a lot I want to show you here. But to Matthew 12, 38 to 40, where he says a wicked and what adulterous nation. What does adultery mean? You're unfaithful to God. You've you've married another. He calls it idolatry, right? There's idolatry in your heart. A wicked and adulterous unfaithful people look for a sign and none's going to be given except for three days and three nights in the belly of the whale like Jonah. Remember when he said that? That's the passage for it. So this, this issue of looking for a sign, Jesus demonstrating clearly his divine power over nature, and now number two, Jesus has a demonstration of his divine power over prophecy in verse 19, through 21 verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews said it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. Our propensity because of the context we've been put in is to count, measure and weigh things. What are they doing? Counting, measuring and weighing. I see it took Herod. He started about 20 BC, and by now it's 27, 28 AD. That would be the math for 46 years. It's been 46 years, and guess what? It's not nearly done. He doesn't ever complete it. It gets destroyed by Titus in 70 AD. So that's what they're doing. They're they're putting the math together by the one who invented math and gave it to us. This is, it's, it's, it's really remarkable. Temple here, but what I want to draw your attention to is the difference in the Greek word that he used for temple here. It's different than verse 14 and 15, where Jesus is clearing the temple. That's a different word it has to if you remember it has to do with the, the entire compound of the temple mount area all the buildings and courtyards and structures that that word in the greek that he uses in those verses which is uh, hieron this here is naos in the greek which speaks specifically to the inner part of the holy of holies that building by itself that only the high priest went into because who dwelt in there god God knows what he's doing when he's writing. This temple is the one that will be destroyed. The one that has God dwelling in it. That one. Yeah. So I like in Matthew 12 of just getting back to that. I think I put it in there for you. Matthew 12, just verse six. I tell you, he says there, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. He might have spoke that, he might have responded with that when they said, this took us 46 years. And as magnificent as that, And you know, Herod is just trying to recapture, he's reconstructing what Zerubbabel had built in uh, 586 B.C. to 516, uh, their 70-year period when they were over in Babylon. And Zerubbabel's back now, and uh, Cyrus had let them go, and there's that bit of wonderful prophecy there long before it happens that Cyrus is letting them free after Persia had conquered the Babylonians and Zerubbabel comes back and builds the temple. And actually there's people that are there. If you look at Nehemiah, uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, there's people there that have returned from Babylon that are old enough to remember what the Solomonic temple looked like. And it was fantastic. It was amazing. So this one's, This is a smaller one, and it's not quite as fantastic. And so they were weeping over that at that time when they returned. These ones old enough to remember the splendor of the Solomonic temple. So who knows? Herod, remember the Jewish background? We talked about that when we were going through Acts. Uh, Wanted to build something. He loved building projects. This is Herod the Great. And so now he's going to restore that to an amazing, an amazing Uh, place. And so it's taken 46 years to get to this place. This is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry in 27, 28 uh, AD, which would put him uh, somewhere in his early thirties. But something greater than that has come. What are we missing here when we're looking at certain things, when we're counting things and when we're measuring things and we're weighing things to try to come up with the answer for things? What are we missing there? That's what got my attention. But verse 21 says, but he's speaking about the temple of his body, the naos, the holy of holies, which is his body. This is the temple. This is the temple. But here's what's really amazing is there's commentators that look at destroy this temple in the Greek and equate it with a future tense. So as to say, you will destroy this temple, and I will raise it up. You will destroy the temple of my body, and I will raise it up. With amazing precision, he gives his prophecies. Only God can do this, or the prophet through through the prophet, God speaking. So this isn't a command to destroy Jesus, uh, destroy this temple, meaning himself. No, this is you will. You're going to do it. You're going to destroy the temple. And I will raise it up. The body has significance here. In this case, the body of Christ. But let's press on. So it's not a command to destroy Jesus. He's stating the certainty of a future fact is with that prophetic precision that he has. A future, of course, that John now is well aware of, right? He was at the, the crucifixion. He was the only disciple there, right? The rest had scattered. He was with Peter, lagging a little bit behind, maybe can't quite run as fast to go to the empty tomb. He's gone. God didn't... God only needed the angel to roll the stone away. He didn't need one there anymore. They could have punched out at that point, right? Day's over. Let's get back to glory. Let's get out of here. Yet he left them there to tell them who came, who loved him, who still want to follow him, who are still pursuing him, who are in deep wretched grief that he's gone. They they can say, who are you looking for? And why are you looking for him? Didn't you listen to what he told you? See, John's getting all that now. And so we are benefiting from that. Wonderful. It has taken 46 years to build the temple. So, okay. But what we want to pay attention to is the exact words there because Jesus answered them, Now, let's review it again before I show you something else. Destroy this temple, which is you will destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, watch this. You just heard it. You're looking at it in your Bibles. Three years later, fast forward three years later, we're at Jesus' trial. Some stood up. This is Mark 14, 57 and 58. Some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, now listen to what they're saying. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Is that what he said? It's not even close. This is a refabrication. This is is twisted. This is false. It's distortion of what he actually said. It reminded me of someone else at a different place in the Old Testament, and that would be in the uh, uh, Chronicle of Genesis when in chapter 3... It opens with what? Do you remember what the serpent said to Eve? What did he say? Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree? That sounds oppressive, doesn't it? I don't want you eating from any of these trees. You kids leave those trees alone. That's not what he said. From every tree, eat freely, except this one. Distortion. Who does it come from? Yeah. And we're seeing it all the time. It plays out in, in every courtroom across the, in every scenario. Look for it. It's there. Is that what was actually said? No, not even close. And uh, then in Mark 15, the next chapter, 29 to 30. They've crucified him. He's hanging there. He's still alive. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from that cross. Everything has to do with physical objects. Everything has to do with man. What what man can do. What man has to work with. They're completely clueless as to what this is all about. Do you think Jesus had the power to come down from the cross if he wanted to? Of course he could. You can tear down that forty-six-year building project of <laughs> of King Herod the Great, and you're going to re- and you're going to rebuild it in three days. So they're mocking him for it, and it's not even what he said. Did he have enough reason to be discouraged? He sure did. Would we wonder if we were in his place, why we were even assigned to this assignment because nobody's getting it. And the worst part is nobody wants to. Don't, don't mess up my life. I've got it squared away just the way I want it. Thank you very much. In Mark 14... Verse fifty nine. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. That's the thing, and I think I've mentioned this before recently. When when fabrications start, when lies start happening, or twistings and turnings happen, distortions happen. It fragments. It, it breaks off. It's just like oh, what a tangled web we weave. When at first what practice? Yeah, one lie is so weak that it has to be propped up by other lies if it's going to stand. And then other lies have to come after that to help prop up those. The truth stands by itself like a great pillar. It doesn't move. It doesn't need support. Speaking the truth is what we're called to because he is the truth, right? That's no truth here. So Jesus had revealed the details of what necessarily had to take place to the disciples. Listen to this prophetic precision. Matthew 16 verse 21 from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day be raised. Is that pretty specific? (laughs) Next chapter, he gets even more specific. Chapter 20, or seventeen, rather, verse twenty-two and twenty-three. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, "The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day." You know, is this thing on, <laughs> right? <laughs> because here we go again. They're headed for Jerusalem. He's obviously getting that. They don't get it. They're, they get forlorn over it. They're like, oh, probably thinking, don't talk like that. Why, we don't want to hear that part. Don't you have the tendency sometimes when somebody's telling you that what you need to hear some piece of it, it's like, I don't want to hear that right now. That's where they were at. They didn't get it. They were confused. They're like, why is he talking like this? But in chapter 20, verse 18 to 19, it's even more pointed. Listen to this. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. Remember what I said about what happens when we get to Jerusalem? We're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn Him to death and deliver Him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and He will be raised up on the third day. Does it get more specific than that? This prophecy there isn't a detail you suspect immediately that he doesn't know. This is amazing knowledge, amazing prophecy, and every detail of it, not kind of came close, not in a general way with every detail was fulfilled. Wasn't it? He's showing his divine power here. The disciples, the five that were there with him at the temple cleansing, they, 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 They heard some of this from him. We don't know how much. The record doesn't show. This is the beginning of his ministry. But they certainly found out, didn't they? What has to happen? Verse 21, he was speaking of the temple of his body. So now we see exactly what he's talking about prophetically. You know, when King Solomon was giving his opening prayer of dedication for the grand uh, Solomonic temple that he finished. Praise this beautiful prayer, and some of you remember it or are familiar with it in Second Chronicles six. And in verse eighteen, Solomon prays. And watch what Solomon gets. Remember, he was fairly wise, right? According to what Scripture says, but will but will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Somebody might be getting it here. Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Right answer. That's why Stephen addresses this and it gets him what? Stoned to death. He was killed for it. I don't dwell in the things you build for me. You're going to destroy this temple and I'm going to raise it up. How about that? Wow, oh, that's impressive. And you have uh, Paul then, or Stephen rather, in his sermon. It's amazing because he cites this in Acts seven forty-eight to 49. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. He's got to already be gaining their ire. You can't do much to a king, King Solomon. But this is just, who? who is this guy? Remember what they said about him? They falsely accused him. We'll look at that in a second. But the most high does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Do not my hand make all these things like the stone itself and the lumber itself and the gold, the minerals, all the rest of it? Aren't I the one who manufactured those? You're going you're gonna to confine me into a space so that you can turn it into what? Idolatry. Yeah. It's about a place. It's always about spatial things. It's about physical things because man is about himself. They desecrate their very temple that they think that they're worshiping God in. That's the point Stephen made. And he got pummeled for it. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, did not my hands make these things. He's repeating this from from Isaiah 66. And then Paul at the Areopagus, remember that speech he gave? Chapter 17 of Acts, verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. See, they've got it long after he's gone, don't they? Paul sure did. Where does it dwell? In his body. God dwells in the body of the God-man. As Colossians says in chapter 2, verse 9, in him, the whole fullness of what? Deity. Dwells what? How? Bottle. You're looking at the temple, he could have said. But we're only at the beginning of things, and I don't want you rushing to pick up stones. You don't realize who you're talking to. What grace, what patience, what he, what he endured, what he tolerated. So thus the setting. This is setting the example for us, isn't it? His temple will be the individual and collective or corporate body of believers, won't it? And we know those verses. We're very familiar with them. 1 Corinthians 6, Where don't, don't know you not that your bodies are what? The temple of the Holy Spirit? See, we have the benefit of all these things. Isn't that amazing? We have the benefit of all of this amazing truth revealed to us. But what does that then put on us? A great responsibility, doesn't it? They didn't have anywhere near the information we do that's illuminated by the Holy Spirit if we would simply pick up and read like we're doing here this morning. It's, it's remarkable. We are individually and collectively the church is the body of Christ now. He understands our condition that we are spatially oriented. So he gives us metaphors, doesn't he? He gives us illustrate. You're like a building or you're like a field farmer's field, right? Or you're like, you're like a soldier. We can wrap our mind around that. Otherwise, how do you conceive of an eternal everlasting God who is spirit and does not have a body? Yet He created this context. He put us in. And so He speaks to us this way as those speaking to His children because He is. 1 Peter 2, 4-5 As you come to Him, a living stone then, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. That's His building stones. Chosen specifically and precious to him to build this glorious temple. You yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He doesn't need brick and mortar. We build it. We say we've got them contained there. We manage things According to our father, Moses we will do these sacrifices and we'll be fine and he'll tear it down. He loves us enough to do that. He'll tear it down. We can make those structures in our heart, can't we? I think you can carry the metaphor that far. Third, Jesus' divine power over death. So we see his divine power over nature I mean, and there's so many other places where he demonstrates that, right? We'll be looking at those miracles as we go forward and the synoptics have even more. But his divine power of prophecy, couldn't we spend a whole lot of time on that? <laughs> it's remarkable. But we're going to take these in bite size because there's, it has its own effect to bring these together collectively so you can really savor the moment of what's going on here at the beginning of his ministry, His divine power over death. Verse 22. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said, that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. We get it now. We understand. He is risen. How did he do that? only God can do it, right? Folks, we have we have God here. He rose Lazarus from the dead, didn't he? In chapter 11, verse 38 to 44, we won't take time to look at it. He's got power over life and death, doesn't he? He is life itself. He is life itself. He he animates and sustains everything that has life. Or doesn't live. True saving faith is not a matter of seeing particular miracles performed at the request of skeptics. Show us a sign. Do you see how ridiculous that is now? <laughs> That's not true saving faith. You know, if he would just bring the, did you ever have anybody you were witnessing to say, if, if this ever happened, They want him in a three-ring circus. You're going to perform for us and then I will come to Christianity, to your Christianity. No, you won't. Because in fact, what happens in Abraham's bosom is more to the truth. Let me go back. I have brothers there. I'll tell them. Surely seeing me come back from the dead. And what does he say? They won't. They have Moses. They have the scriptures. In other words, they will reject the dead coming back to life. Only he has the power of life and death. They're just trying to put on some kind of a a show. So they believed the scripture. I was so glad, so happy, so blessed to read that. It doesn't say that they believed the water becoming wine. They believed anything else. They believed the scripture and the word that Jesus spoke to them. They remembered what he said. Now they remember Matthew 16, Matthew 17, Matthew 20, where it gives them plenty of deep detail. On the road, nice and quiet. They can hear him. They're walking. Everybody walked everywhere. There's plenty of time to explain to you very carefully what's going to happen. And they put it all together. They believe what he's saying. That's the point. In their case, it would have been verses like this. Psalm 16, verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Wow! Oh, so even if somebody managed to kill him and put him in a the deepest tomb there is, you won't abandon him there. He will rise. He will rise, and he will live. David's writing that. Remember, King David. So Peter repeats it in his first sermon. Remember when he puts that back together, Acts two, verse thirty-one. David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This is beautiful because you see the, the, the disciples becoming apostles now, and they're making sense out of the scriptures that they had. I get it now. I know who King David is talking about because the Messiah is going to come from his line. He's talking about Messiah. David's still buried in his tomb. I've, I've seen his tomb. If you could get in there, you'd probably see a bunch of dust. He's talking about Messiah. That wonderful interlude between Messiah and his father. You won't abandon me. You won't leave me in the grave. And he won't leave any of us either. You and I who believe. Number four we see Jesus' divine power of all knowledge. This is amazing. Verse 23 to 25. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Many believed in his name. It says there because, well, of course, because they saw the signs that he was doing. It said that he was doing signs. And so they're believing the signs when they saw the signs he was doing. So yeah, they believe who he is. Sure. I believe that. Why didn't he entrust himself to them? because he can read their hearts. Something you and I can't do. We think that we can from time to time, don't we? I know what you're thinking. No, you don't. You really don't. I was just working on my grocery list. you know. So this word is pistuo, which is the same word that's used where it When it says that they believed, it's Pistuo, but he didn't entrust himself. Pistuo, it's the same. Those are synonyms. So it's faith, it's trust, it's belief, all synonyms. Amazing. So after feeding the 5,000 back to John 6 again for a moment, Jesus exposes their motives for seeking him. Do you remember that? Why are they seeking? Why are the people still hanging out and looking for him after he fed them? because they want to repent of their sins and fall on their face before the Messiah? John 6, 26, Truly, truly, I say to you, I'm about to tell you something. This is very, very certain, and you need to hear it. That's, That's how he would mean that expression. I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves, because I fed you. Not because these... The Father has allowed these fantastic signs to take place in the ordinance of God himself. These things are taking place. There, should be, there shouldn't be any question at all. No, you're here so you can get another meal. By the way, did you pick up on this? You are seeking me not because of the signs, but because of the fill of loaves. Do you remember the question? What are you seeking? You see why now he asks it? Does he need an answer to that because he doesn't know? He wants you and I to think about that. What are you seeking? How gentle, how patient, how loving. I want you to think about this. Okay, well, come and follow me you want to see where I live. You'll come and you'll see. Wow, that's a supercharged statement right there. And then his, you put that together with his other question to his mother. Woman, what does this have to do with me? Two of the most important questions I think we can carry in our minds going forward the rest of our lives. Well, you know, it's not based on belief that a person is saved. You're, you're familiar with James 2.19. You believe that God is one. In other words, you believe in God. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder or Mark 1, 24. When the demons say themselves, the demons state with perfect precision who he actually is. What have I to do? What have you to do with us? Jesus of Nazareth. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. The Holy one of God. Do they believe? Yeah, they're not making that up. I know who you are. I know you're the Holy one from God and what are you doing here before the time? We're having fun here. Leave us alone, son of God. They knew who he was. This is belief, folks. How about Mark 5 and verse 7? And crying out with a loud voice, the demon said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the Most High? I know you're the son of Elion, God Most High. Yeah. Yeah. So you believe that that's who I am. Sure. Leave me alone. But we. We refrain from thinking that way about other people who claim to be Christians. Don't tell me I don't believe I believe. Hmm. The demons not only saw the signs that Jesus was doing when they were exposed they became part of the sign jesus could cast out demons of course the demons believed they were they were no part of him luther speaks to this kind of a confession as quote milk faith he goes on this explains a a young faith of such as enthusiastically agrees and gives in and believe they believe, but just as quickly withdraw when they hear something unpleasant or unexpected (laughs) or that challenges their life. That was it with the Sanhedrin. They didn't lack intelligence. Are you kidding me? The scribes? Nobody knew the scriptures better than they did. They were the temple lawyers. They knew the, 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 their scriptures inside and out. They believed. Many people who sadly identify as a Christian don't personally know or follow Jesus Christ. They don't really know him. And so they're under the condemnation of Matthew 7 where he says, many will say what? Lord, Lord, we did all these things. I believed. I don't know you. You didn't follow me. You followed your own way. You grabbed a hold of something and I, I believe that you believed it. But you never sought me. You didn't want me. You wanted your own way. Depart from me. Wow. John MacArthur said, A heathen may intellectually accept a list, a list of gospel facts, but without a divine miracle to open his blind eyes and give him a new heart, he will only be a theologically informed pagan, not a Christian. End quote. So there were many, it says, Many were there that, were, that believed, okay, you got us because they're looking at the signs. But yet he didn't trust them. I would suggest the woods is full of them. You look at their lives and you just shake your head in deep grief for them. You're using his name. Why are you not following him? You love, you go after the ones You love, right? You go after them. You want to be like them. You want to be with them. You set everything else aside so that you can be with them in an intimate way. Because the more you're with them, the more there's that transformational efficacy. The more that I'm with the Savior that I love, the more He's pleased to work and I become more, I can start thinking His thoughts. My worldview gets reshaped into His. I can't wait. Get to work, Lord. Do it. It's going to be painful. I, I know. <laughs> but do it because I love you. And you only love me because what? I first loved you. So the woods is full of them. People who believe, they use the name. They don't know. And that frightens me to my core. There's so many. Those of you who truly know Christ, understand your missionaries. Understand that. That occurred to us at one point over 20 years ago. We're actually missionaries to the gospel. We need to present Christ. And we do that in how we follow him in our lives. Not because of statements we make. Disciples followed him because they believed what he was saying, remember? But when they saw the signs, they actually believed in him because Jesus was revealed to them. That's what MacArthur's talking about. There has to be, that miracle has to happen. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because flesh and blood could never have revealed this to you, but my Father is in heaven. The joy that must have welled up in the sun. Oh. He's going to be mine because he gets it. What's one of the statements he said when he's out there? Uh, uh, he's resurrected. And who is it? Uh, Mary Magdalene talks to him. You go and you tell my brothers. It's the first time he refers to them that way. They're my brothers. I can only imagine the elation that's in the son of man. When Peter comes out with that, it's like my father's here. My father is pleased to work. There's a huge difference between that person and the person who says, I'm a Christian. Don't tell me I don't believe. I'll tell you, I can quote parts of the Bible. I can tell you the the church I go to. You are a missionary here. You need to know that. So here's the statement for you, if you'll allow me. Not in the proclamation, but in the demonstration is once faith proven to be true. Not in the proclamation. We hope. We pray. We want to err on the side of, I'm, I'm, I hope you're right. And then God makes us privy to things in their life that they're unwilling to let go of. And our heart falls, doesn't it? it falls a great fall and a lump goes up in our throat and tears come in our eyes and we're thinking, you don't know him. You don't know him. John 8, 31 to 32, he says something very similar there. So Jesus said to the Jews, listen, who had believed him. I'm sorry, who had believed in him. Okay? If you, if, it's a contingency. Really? We believe in you, though. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. What's a taste? It's one who follows, one who learns from, one who begins to imbibe the character of, one who believes everything that he's teaching about life and how I should comport my life in, on this earth in order to follow him. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Until then, it's not going to. The most loving statement they could have heard. You're not there yet. You don't love me. If you loved me, you'd what? You'd keep my commandments. That's how I call you and have you follow me. No, no, this is the way. No, no, don't go too often. No, no. And he does that through what? His word. Sometimes he has to chasten us. Other times he comforts us. It's we're following him and we're changing and we're growing. John 8, 37 to 38. I know that you are the, our offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me. Listen to this because my word finds no place in you. See, it found its place in the disciples, Right. I speak of what I have seen with my father and you do. There it is. It's the actions folks. It's the lifestyle. It's their choices. And you do what you have heard from your father. So what does that tell us? Everyone listens, right? We're created as listeners. Adam and Eve listened to God and then obeyed until they disobeyed because they listened to someone else. So everyone listens, each to his own desire. So it depends on where your desire is. Jesus speaks, and the devil speaks as well, doesn't he? We've got two voices, two convening voices. And what do you think the devil is speaking to or appealing to? Let me put it that way. Your flesh. He wants it. He wants your soul. Go ahead and, and comfort yourself with, oh, I believe in Jesus. There's two voices. Which one are you following? Which one directs the concourse of your life? I mean, really. It, it does you no good to hide something that has to do with your eternal destiny. Right? That'd be like a really bad mistake. Jesus speaks to the heart. The devil speaks to the flesh. Your actions prove not only who you're listening to, but what you value most. I made sure that this is in your outline for you. You can request this. I'll send it to you. Just give me a text. Send me that outline. I'll send it to you. It's on Sermon Audio. Get it. This is very important that we all understand this. We like to think we're all safe because we say, I believe and I can quote scripture and I go to church every week or mostly. Those voices are speaking. Which one am I listening to? Which one do I even want to hear from? I'm not going to that pastor. I'm not going to talk to him. I know what he's going to say. You don't think I know that? Of course you know. So then whose voice are you following? Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. 1 Kings 8, 38 and 39. Each knowing the affliction of his own heart. This is back to that prayer again. This is each knowing the affliction of his own heart and stretching out his hands toward this house. This is for the temple. Then here in heaven, he's appealing to God. Then here in heaven, your dwelling place. See, he knows where God actually dwells. Isn't that cool? They got it in the Old Testament, just didn't happen in the new because of what they made out of the temple. And forgive and act and render it to each whose heart you know, according to all his ways. For you, only you know the hearts of all the children of mankind. Psalm 44, 20 to 21. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, any other idol on this created place, wrapped my heart around it, spent my mind on it, dug deep on it, Lord, Lord, would you not discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Who do you think you're pretending to? Not him. You can fool us. That's no big feat. He's looking straight at your heart, and yet he lets us breathe. Oh, wonderful grace. Wonderful grace. First John 3.20. Got to get this in for a landing. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Aren't you thankful? It's not meant to frighten you. It's meant to give you a reverential fear. Uh, but it brings comfort. If you have the right kind of fear of God, it brings comfort and not trepidation. We can go to him, whoever confesses his sin, he will be forgiven and have his heart, what cleansed from all unrighteousness. It's so wonderful. He not only says, I forgive you. Come here. I'm going to bathe you from that nastiness. I'm going to wash it all away. acts one twenty four when they're replacing Judas, you Lord, who knows the hearts of all psalm seven nine to ten, o let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God, my shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart revelation two twenty three and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you as your works deserve. That should get all of our attention, shouldn't it? For either comfort or great concern and conviction. Remember what John says at the end and. John 20, verse 30 to 31. And we'll close with this. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which were not written in this book, but these are written. Why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let's go to him now. No more pretense. Hearts wide open, full honesty and transparency because he sees the reality of our life and our motives and our thoughts already anyway. But he's a God of grace. He's a God of mercy. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your grace, for your mercy. Why you trifle with wretches like us is beyond our ability to understand, but yet we rejoice we rejoice in the sacrifice of the Son. We thank you, O Lord, that you have said, Come unto me, all of you who labor and are heavy laden, because we do that to ourselves, and you know it. You know our hearts all together. And you say, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Thank you, O Lord. As we pray now, Lord, I pray for each and every soul within the sound of my voice that they would pray to receive you in perhaps for the first time, a very real way, understanding that they have made choices that have kept you out of their heart. We pray for them. We pray for us as we thank you for the free gift of salvation in your Son. If only we would believe. For we pray in his name, Jesus the Christ. Amen.